The Bowery Boys, episode 85, Shakespeare in the Park. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with another solo show this week. And today I'll be talking about one of New York's greatest summer traditions ever. That would be Shakespeare in the Park, or more formally, as they say, the New York Shakespeare Festival, which is produced every year by the Public Theater and then put on in Central Park at that lovely outdoor Delacorte Theater. Now, for over half a century, it's been the greatest deal in town. Absolutely free theater that often features major film and theater stars. The greatest deal in town, of course, that is, if you have the time and the patience to stand in line for those very highly sought-after tickets. But to me, that's kind of half the fun. Now, for something so relatively civilized as public theater, the story of this annual theater festival is at the heart of it, it's a wild drama that could have actually taken place in the pages of a Shakespeare play. The story pits two major iconic figures in New York history. In one corner, an eager young theater producer from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Joseph Papp, In the other, of course, one of the 20th century's most powerful New Yorkers, that would be Parks Commissioner, and frequent mention on this show, Robert Moses. Now, along the way, I'll tell you about some famous names that got their start here on the Delacorte stage. You'll learn a little bit about the public theater itself, including a little show called Hair, and you'll find out why exactly Joe decided to go to all this trouble for a free show. And of course, I'll explain the riddle of why Shakespeare in the Park is sometimes not Shakespeare, and for a short time, it wasn't even in Central Park. The Delacorte Theatre, which has been home for the New York Shakespeare Festival since the early 1960s, is located in the middle of Central Park near the Western 80th Street entrance, near Turtle Pond and Belvedere Castle. And I'm not going to lie, it's pretty much one of the greatest outdoor theatre venues ever, in my humble opinion, at least in New York. The Public Theatre, one of the most influential off-Broadway companies ever, and the producer of Shakespeare in the Park, also has a regular stage down in Astor Place at the old Astor Library on Lafayette Street. Now, if the name Astor Library is ringing any bells, go back and listen to our podcast on the New York Public Library, because a lot of the library's original collection actually came from this building, which was once one of the biggest libraries in the city. The public theater is the brainchild of one Joseph or Yosel Poporowski, a native Jewish New Yorker born in Williamsburg, Brooklyn in 1921. Joseph claimed to have learned English, actually, from reading Shakespeare at an early age, and theater really remained in his blood even into early adulthood, producing shows on naval aircraft carriers during World War II. In 1946, in fact, he even produced a show starring Bob Fosse and put it on at that most dazzling of performance venues, the Brooklyn Navy Yard. By 1951, he was back in New York directing regular plays in small village theaters and working on television at CBS. Now, it was during this time that he shortened his name to the singular PAP. P-A-P-P. In 1954, while still employed at CBS, Pap decided that he wanted to share this love of the Bard with the rest of the world and with New Yorkers. He had a very practical philosophy about it. He wanted to appeal to normal people, 
you know, particularly poor and middle class people who maybe really didn't go to the theater all that much. It was hard enough to getting people to make time to see anything, much less something potentially difficult like Shakespeare. He even admitted himself that, quote, if I had had to pay, it was doubtful I would have read the plays of Shakespeare, unquote. And so in 1954, he started up what would be a tiny Shakespeare workshop in the basement of the East Village Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, all the way over at 6th Street and Avenue C, a long way from Central Park. The performances here were free, and the performers themselves got paid nothing except, of course, a little ink on their resumes. But because this was actually, of course, Shakespeare, he actually acquired a charter from the New York State Department of Education, which actually allowed him to produce some very modestly budgeted shows here. Now, as some of you know, New Yorkers love to discover and rave about these little off-the-wall, out-of-the-way things, you know, to be the very first in the know. And so because of this instinct, and also to the excellence of Pap's early shows and the quality of some of his performers, lots of triumphant reviews just poured in and the crowds came. They sought out this little church and filled the basement every night. By 1956, he actually needed a much bigger arena, hopefully something that was a little more accessible to the public. And since Pap had the blessing of the Department of Education, I mean, why not try for a city park? What Joe actually had in mind, though, was this little Lower East Side amphitheater that was right along the edge of the East River, right near this small neighborhood that was once called Corlear's Hook. If you're looking for this amphitheater today, just hit the East River Park and walk south to right around Grand Street, and you can't miss it. Now, along with this innocuous little stage comes the other major player in his tell, Robert Moses. This amphitheater was one of those classic Robert Moses projects. It was built in 1941 to draw people into this newly created East River Park. However, people weren't really clamoring to do anything here at this amphitheater. Until, that is, in 1956, when Pap asked the city for permission to put on his free shows here instead of the basement. Well, Moses actually loved the idea at first, and he gave him the green light. The result, of course, was some excellently produced theater on really shoestring budgets, with the very first production, Julius Caesar, reaching a new height of attention and acclaim. Joe Papp, who loved the media, was actually making a name for himself and proving that there was a demand for formerly highfalutin entertainment and the attractiveness of an outdoor venue in which you could produce it in. So Papp decided to go a little further. The next year, he asked and received permission from the city to produce New York's very own traveling stage, drawn by a 35-foot trailer, the mobile Shakespeare Theater, in fact, that could be carted around from different parks around the area, essentially bringing shows like Macbeth and Richard III to all five boroughs. By the way, about a couple of those shows, Richard III, which was carted around everywhere, featured the talents of a young actor and future Oscar winner named George C. Scott. Another production during this time of Romeo and Juliet, which, by the way, starred Ben's dad, Jerry Stiller, actually set up camp for a short run in Central Park in almost the exact spot that the Delacorte Theater would later be built. Now, during this mobile period of the Shakespeare Theater, the festival would perform in actually a few places around Central Park, with people sitting around on the grass as the players performed on this portable stage. Hmm, Shakespeare, New York's biggest park, centrally located. This all seemed like a very good idea. 
So even though there was no permanent stage, New Yorkers were extremely enamored by this unique idea. And the notion of these ticket lines, which would sometimes go over three hours or more, actually dates back to this period of time in the Shakespeare Festival's history. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Of course, Robert Moses never saw any of these shows, and it would be years and years before he even met Joe Papp. But what happened next would make sure that he never forgot Joe Papp's name. In 1958, Joe was subpoenaed to testify for Joseph McCarthy and the House Committee on Un-American Activities, the vehicle, of course, by which the U.S. government attempted to root out communist sympathizers in the country. In fact, according to Joe's official biographer, he had in fact been a member of the Communist Party back in his youth, but in his testimony, he stated only that he wasn't at present a communist or that he knew any at the time. And for the rest, well, he just pleaded the fifth. He was even asked by the committee if he threaded his stage productions with communist propaganda, to which he replied, The plays we do are Shakespeare plays. I cannot control the writings of Shakespeare. He wrote plays 500 years ago, he said rather dryly. Joe's testimony, although noncommittal, was enough to get him fired from his job at CBS and very nearly derailed the momentum of Shakespeare in the Park. In 1959, Moses suddenly threw an avalanche of restrictions at the festival and promptly rejected Papp's permit, this despite the fact that many of the shows planned for that year were already being rehearsed. Our favorite Parks Commissioner here came up with some real doozies, that the plays were bringing an undesirable element into the park, because we all know what loathsome figures are attracted to Shakespearean drama, that the actors' dressing room facilities were inadequate and of course, the absolute best here, that the crowd of people that were sitting for a couple hours every night were causing an unrepairable erosion problem to the park's soil. Yes, Shakespeare was causing erosion here in Central Park. Ultimately, he wanted Pap to start charging admission to pay for all this supposed harm that was being done to the park. Moses was seeing dollar signs, of course, but also the root of all of this may have been Pap's suspicious past and this testimony, of course, with the House Committee. But by this time... 
people were already writing off the House committee's absurd witch hunts, with even former President Harry Truman calling the House committee the most un-American thing in our country today. So if Truman didn't care, certainly most New Yorkers didn't care, the public rallied to Joe Papp's defense. Newspapers took on the cause with such headlines as Moses against Shakespeare. Papp eventually took the city to court and only won after a verdict was passed down from the appellate court. Now, this is Robert Moses. He obviously could have just pushed this until he won. However, this particular incident, Moses versus Pap, and an incident small in the general scheme of things for his long, industrious career, it had actually seriously dented Robert's reputation. It even led some people to reconsider some of Moses' other decisions. So to stop the bleeding, he had to basically stop fighting. And not even stop fighting, he had to go back and repair some of the damage that happened here. So with Pap and the Shakespeare Festival back on, and even more energized by the press, which attracted new theater goers and even more impressive talent, Moses relented and authorized a permanent home be built here in Central Park in this area next to Belvedere Castle. When the final cost of the theater, which was completed in 1961, when the cost exceeded the amount funded by the city, it took one man, a theater supporter and book publisher, George Delacorte, to sweep in to save the day and make up the difference so they could finish building it. And that's why the theater is actually named for him today, the Delacorte Theater. The very first performance here was in 1962, and it was The Merchant of Venice, starring a man soon to become the world's most recognizable voice, actor James Earl Jones. Or should I say, James Earl Jones. So finally, with his Shakespeare performances here, just humming along rather nicely each year, Pap decided to look for a permanent home for the company which, where he could actually debut new non-Shakespearean productions. Meanwhile, at the same time across town, the old Astor Library was actually facing the wrecking ball, if you can believe this. You gotta love New York in the 60s. And in fact... It might have been completely wiped off the map had the Landmark Preservation Society not stepped in to protect it in 1965. In fact, this was another building saved because of the sacrifice of Penn Station, which had been demolished just a little over a year before. With the help of some rather healthy donations, Pap acquired the building a year later, moved the public theater in, and it's still there today. And just to make sure that people were paying attention and knew where their new home was, the very first show staged at the old Astor Library was the eye-popping, counter-revolutionary, hippie-outrageous musical Hair, which debuted in October of 1967 and became the first show ever to transfer from off-Broadway to the big stage, bringing with it a young actress and future Woody Allen muse Diane Keaton, among many others in the cast. Now, Hare lost the Tony Award for Best Musical when it was up in 1969, but a revival of that musical, which actually debuted at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park, went on to win it 40 years later. That's right, it won it this year, and just a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact. But probably the best-known show that ever sprouted from a public theater stage was A Chorus Line, which also transferred to Broadway to become one of the longest-running shows in Broadway history. Meanwhile, at the stage in Central Park, the annual troops were dutifully bringing Shakespeare to the eyes of New Yorkers, with several non-Shakespearean shows thrown in for good measure, by the way. For a few years in the 1970s, Pap even launched productions over at Lincoln Center. But perhaps the public theater's most unusual show show in the 70s is that oft-forgotten Shakespeare work, The Pirates of Penzance. Okay, maybe that's not Shakespeare. 
The Pirates of Penzance, which actually played Central Park in 1979 and then moved to Broadway from there. This being the late 70s, this pirate was a little... Um, a little unorthodox. It featured a synthesizer-based score and starred Kevin Klein and that Broadway legend herself, Linda Ronstadt. Kevin Klein was actually a festival regular, frequently playing Hamlet, and also a Shakespeare regular was Meryl Streep. Most recently brought Bertolt Brecht to life there in Mother Courage and Her Children in 2006. Now, by the time the 1980s rolled around, the public theater was developing its reputation as one of the most important and influential stages in America, often bringing provocative shows featuring taboo subjects, such as Larry Kramer's 1985 show, The Normal Heart, one of the first productions to address the subject of AIDS, and which actually became the longest-running show in history at the public's downtown stage. Sadly, Joe Papp himself died in 1991, but not before becoming a vocal opponent of Congressman Jesse Helms, rejecting grant money from the National Endowment of the Arts because he refused to sign an anti-obscenity agreement. I mean, what's the theater without a little obscenity? Papp did leave the public theater in good hands, though, with acclaimed director George C. Wolfe at the helm from the 90s through the year 2004. Now, Wolfe's best-known work is most likely Bring in the Noise, Bring in Defunk, a tap dance musical that also went on to win a Tony for Best Musical. Today, up in Central Park, the Shakespeare tradition lives on as strong as ever. You can find some information on how to score some tickets on their website, and I'll post a link to that on our website, BatteryBoysPodcast.com also have a few other stories on there, sort of theater-related stories this week, including a little bit more history on that East Village Amphitheater that the Shakespeare and Park people got their start at. So thank you very much for listening. Tom will be back in two weeks. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. 